Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. That will sort of be our jumping off point this morning as we look at the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. And we've been in this series for a couple weeks now talking about the means of grace. And that might be a new phrase for some of us. What are the means of grace? Is this sort of a Catholic phrase? I mean, what are we talking about here? But simply put, the means of grace are those things that the scriptures talk about that God uses to save and to change his people. That grace has been purchased by Christ on the cross, that he went there for sinners, that he purchased grace And he's not stingy with that grace. He doesn't keep it to himself, that he gives it to his people freely by faith. And that that faith is meant to rise up in God's people, not just initially when they're saved, but to grow them and strengthen them and keep them to the end. And God does this through many things, and those things are what we're talking about. And the first thing that we talked about is this idea of the word as the primary means God uses to save and change his people. The Word of God is how we know who God is, what He's done. It's this revelation to us, His infallible, supernatural revelation that He's written down for us that we might know Him, and not just know Him, but be saved and changed by Him. And then last week we talked about baptism, how it's an important sign of what God has done. It's not something that saves us in and of itself, But it's a sign of what God has done, that in being buried under the water and coming up from the water is a sign of our death and resurrection in Christ, that he took the judgment that we deserved, and that these are signs that God has given his people to show them the promises of the covenant, this new covenant in Christ. And so this week, we're really going to continue that study, this idea of the signs of the covenant, and we'll look at this idea of the Lord's Supper, or communion, as it's often called. And if you thought last week there was a lot of different views of baptism, what's happening, what's going on, there's even more when it comes to the Lord's Supper. I don't know what comes to your head when you think of this idea of communion or the Lord's Supper, but there's many different concepts, many different ideas that people have when it comes to this idea of the Lord's Supper. What does it mean? What is is happening in it? And why is it important? And as one um, commentator said, more ink was spilled during the Reformation on the topic of the Lord's Supper than on the topic of justification, which is a central doctrine to the Christian faith, but more ink was spilled about the Lord's Supper because there was so much disagreement about what was going on, what was the nature of it, to the point that some Protestants were being put to death because they would not say that the, the bread and the wine was being transformed into the body and blood of Christ. They were burned alive for their beliefs. And so even though this morning we should be thankful that no one's being put to death, right? This morning, in our time, we might have the exact opposite problem, where we don't know what we believe. We don't know why the Lord's Supper is important. We don't know what is happening. And so, thankfully, God has given us his word. He's given us this means of grace. And so we should know what is happening. And so we'll see in Scripture this morning that the Lord's Supper is something that God has given his church. It's something God has given his people. It's not a human invention or a human creation. 
It is a sign given by God to his people. And while we shouldn't have a superstitious view of it or a superficial view of it, we need this morning to have a right scriptural view of it, that it is a means God uses to grow and strengthen the faith of his people. And so this morning, the goal is that we will hopefully see that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's a sign for God's covenant people, a sign of the promises of the new covenant, that for those that are covered by the blood of Christ, by the true Passover lamb, their sins might be forgiven and God's people might be nourished, fed, and assured. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll look at this passage in Scripture, which one of the main passages in the New Testament that talks about this idea of the Lord's Supper. Now, in this passage, we'll just touch on it a little bit, but Paul is speaking to this church in Corinth. And if you go back a couple chapters, you'll see what's happening in this church, that they have a similar problem as many people today. They don't know what's going on. They don't know why they're doing it, and their practice is out of order. And he'll, he, he's really rebuking them. I mean, if you look back a couple chapters, I mean, he is, he is not holding back what he is saying. That in this church there was division arising, there was misunderstanding about the purpose and nature of the Lord's Supper. Some people were getting drunk, others were going away hungry. It was all about this individualistic idea and less about what God was doing, unifying and fellowshipping with his people. And in this passage, Paul corrects their thinking he corrects their practice, and he does it by going back to what we call the words of institution, or really the, the theology of the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we'll read this morning, and we'll use that as a jumping off point to talk about this idea of communion or the Lord's Supper. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll read the passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's Word. This is what Paul says to the church. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come in need, in great need, that we in and of ourselves are not wise. We are not all-knowing. And in your grace and in your mercy, you've given us your word. You've given us these signs of the covenant that we can be reminded of what you have done for us. And so this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth of what is really going on, that we would see Christ more clearly this morning, that our eyes would be turned to the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross for sinners and that this morning you might save your people, that you would change them, that you would grow them in grace, that you would strengthen them, not only by the proclamation of your word, but by the Lord's Supper. That as we come together as your covenant people, we would, we would be those that have been bought with your blood 
the church of God, and that you would see us to the end by your grace, Lord. We need your help by the power of your spirit. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see these truths, to take hold of them by faith, and be changed this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. If you want to follow along with me, I'll have an outline this morning. We'll look at three different things. First, we're going to look at what is the Lord's Supper? What do we mean when we say the Lord's Supper? What is it? Where does it come from? And what is it pointing to? And then we'll look at this idea of covenant and the Passover lamb. We'll go back to the Old Testament to see the roots of the Lord's Supper, that it's not just this thing that came out of thin air, but it's much more than that. And then finally, we'll try to apply this and look at this idea of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. So, as we looked at in our confession of faith this morning, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance or a sacrament of the New Testament. It's not something found in the Old Testament. You can't go back into the Old Testament and find the Lord's Supper or find communion. That it's an ordinance of the New Testament, of the New Covenant. That it was instituted by our Lord on the night he was betrayed, where we take bread and we take wine, representing the body and the blood of Christ, and we remember the death of our Lord. We remember his blood spilled, his death on the cross. And by that, God's people are nourished by faith, and it's a sign of not only our communion with one another as we partake together, but a sign of our communion with God. And so a couple things to point out about that definition as we start to look at this. This is an ordinance of the new covenant. <laughs> that there's this connection between the Lord's Supper and covenant. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's important to see that this was instituted by our Lord. As I said before, this is not a man-made invention. It's not something that... A bunch of people got together and said, I think this would be a good idea to take a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine and, and we just remember this. No, this is something that our Lord has given his church. And we read in Matthew 26 this, that as they were eating, very similar words, Jesus took the bread. He said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup. He said, drink, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. We see in this passage that the Lord is the Lord of the Supper. Why is it called the Lord's Supper? Because it's his supper. It's not our supper. It's, it's no one else's supper. It is the Lord's Supper. It is his to define what it means, what it is. It's his. And we see in Scripture that this is not only a practice that happened on the night before Jesus was betrayed, but it's continued in the church. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, the early church comes together, and it says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and then it says to the breaking of the bread. And there's an article before the word bread. It's the bread. And I, along with many scholars, believe this is talking about the Lord's Supper, that when they came together, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, fellowshipping with one another, and the breaking of the bread, communion, the Lord's Supper. Same thing in Acts 20. It says on the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread. So this was not a one-time event that they did. It was something that was continued in the life of the church. As they gathered together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And we see that with all these scriptures, as we compile what the New Testament has to say about the Lord's Supper, 
This supper is connected to the promises of the new covenant, namely forgiveness of sins by the shedding of blood, communion with God, his body and his blood, substitutionary atonement, this idea that death has passed over God's people because the blood of the Lamb has been applied to them, and that God is present with his people by the Spirit. And so we can say that this is a covenant meal for the covenant people of God. And right at this point is when your Old Testament siren should be going off. That this sounds familiar. This sounds like something I've heard before. That if we're familiar with the Old Testament, as one person said, there's another covenant meal in the Old Testament where the covenant Lord gives a covenant meal to his covenant people connected to covenant blood. That's why we called our church that, right? In the presence of God, celebrating an act of salvation. It's talking about the Passover event. So if we go to our second point this morning, we're going to see this connection between covenant and Passover. That in the Old Testament, there's a similar covenant meal that God instituted. Not the same, but similar. Where God has a meal where, with his covenant people that's connected to covenant blood where they celebrate God's act of salvation. And this is true of the people of Israel. And so if we go back to the book of Exodus, the second book in the scriptures, we see that God saves his people from Egypt. That the people of Israel were in slavery, they were in bondage in Egypt, and God hears their cry and he sends his special servant, Moses, his chosen servant, to go and to redeem his people. And yet we know the story that Pharaoh will not let them go. Pharaoh will not let these people go. They are in slavery, they're in bondage. It's free labor. He's not going to let them go. And so we, through God, through Moses, performs many signs, many wonders, these plagues of the Old Testament, whereby God would save his people. And the tenth and the final plague, I mean, there's many plagues. Not the nine other plagues, the Nile is turned into blood. There's flies and there's pestilence. There's all these many plagues that God pours out on the people to let the people go. And yet Pharaoh will not budge. These are almost curses that God is sort of pouring out. The water is turned to blood. The land is famished of all of its food. The sun is blotted out. And yet this tenth and final plague is the worst. It is where death comes to every home. That this was going to be the day of judgment, the day where divine wrath would come and move through the land. And it would come to every home. There would not be a home that would be spared from this wrath, from this day of judgment, from this day of death. But God, in his mercy, provides a way he provides a shield to protect his people from this divine wrath, the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb. That there's one way that these people can be spared from this divine wrath, it's through the blood of the lamb. That God gives very specific instructions to his people that they're to take a perfect spotless lamb without blemish, they're to sacrifice it, put it to death in their place. And they're to roast the lamb over fire. They're to eat it with bread and wine in this covenant meal. And that the blood is going to be applied to the doorposts and to the lintel. 
And we read in Exodus 12 that when the Lord comes through the land to execute his just judgment and divine wrath, he will see the blood applied to the door and he will pass over the house. He will pass over the door and not allow the angel of death to enter. The blood will be seen and God will pass over. Unless we think this, I think in our minds sometimes we think of this Passover as simply God just moving past, right? Think of it as a Passover, which it is. But there's another, there's more language in the Hebrew that's coming out. There's imagery that's being evoked. It's not just a passing over, but a covering, a hovering, a protecting. And this same word is used in Isaiah 31 where it says, Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. Covering, he will deliver it. Hovering, he will save it. So this Passover is not just a passing over, but it's a covering over. It's a hovering over. It's a protecting of the people. Because we read in Exodus chapter 12 that it says the Lord will pass over so that the destroyer, the destroyer will not enter the house to strike you. So there's this sense in which there's, there's this divine protection. It's not just as if God passes by, but there's a protecting, a covering, a hovering. So if you reread it with this sort of other language, it reads like this, that the Lord will hover over or cover over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house or to strike you. It's for the purpose of covering or hovering, where we could say it like this, this Passover is not a separating or a distancing of God from the house. It is his abiding divine presence, protecting, covering, and shielding his people. This is what God has done in the Passover. Through the means of the blood, by his spirit, he covers and protects his people. And that even though this was a sign of death, the blood on the doorframe was an emblem of salvation. For it was the blood of a triumphant sacrifice. <laughs> the blood was the means by which the people were saved. That was a quote from Meredith Klein. And so we can say that it is through this event that God saves his covenant people. He brings them out of slavery. It's the Passover event. That's how he brings them out. Death comes to the Egyptians and he spares the people of Israel. God protects his people. By the blood of the lamb, he redeems them out of slavery from the divine wrath. This was a sign of God's covenant with them. And as we read the Old Testament, this is not the only time this idea of blood being applied happens. This lamb, like the other sacrifices in the Old Testament, was to be a constant reminder to the people. A constant reminder that they needed a substitute. They needed someone to step into their place. They needed a spotless sacrifice that would take the wrath that they deserved and atone for their sins. And these sacrifices in the Old Testament, as the book of Hebrews will tell us, they did not remove the sin from the people. They reminded them of their sin. That that sacrifice should be me. That lamb should be me. That should be my blood. That's what the people were to remember. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you see that the Old Testament is looking for this one, 
this one that's going to be perfect and spotless, this one that's going to deal with the sinfulness of sin and at the same time bring true atonement and covering for God's people. To the point where the prophet Isaiah looks forward to this servant that will come and suffer. This one that's going to come, he's going to be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shears is silent. That he is going to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Pierced for the transgression of his people. Crushed for our iniquity. By his wounds, his people might be healed. So the Old Testament is looking forward to this one, this one that's going to come and suffer for the sin of his people and be a substitute, a covering for the covenant people of God. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he sees Christ walking down the road, what does he say to him? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist did not just make up that statement. He did not just get that out of thin air. He is looking and reading the Old Testament. And to remove all doubt from this, to remove all doubt between the connection of the Passover lamb and the blood of Christ, what night did Jesus institute the Lord's Supper? It was the night of the Passover. It was the night of the Passover when Christ instituted this new covenant meal for his covenant people. And so this is no coincidence that it just happened to be on the night of the Passover. It is divine appointment. It is by divine appointment. And so when Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room and he says, this is my body, this is my blood broken for you, spilled for you, he's telling them something very specific. He's saying, I am the true Passover lamb. I am the true Passover the lamb. The one whose perfect spotless blood will be spilled so that my people might be spared. The one who will stand in the place of unworthy sinners so that they might be redeemed. The one who will undergo the judgment, the divine wrath, might be poured out on him so that death might pass over God's people. This is what Christ has done on the cross. And as we read this morning in Hebrews, he's the great high priest. He's the one that enters into the heavenly temple, not by the means of blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood securing an eternal redemption. It doesn't need to be repeated. We're not re-sacrificing Christ each week. We are looking back to the one sacrifice of Christ who was spilled, who was poured out as a drink offering for us that when we, by faith, believe in Christ, the blood is applied to us. We are washed in the blood. And that's the only hope that you and I have this morning. We don't have another hope, another means, just as the people of Israel, the Egyptians... They thought they could stand the judgment on their own. They said, I don't need the blood of a lamb. That is ridiculous. And they suffered the judgment. We have one hope this morning, one way to be saved from the day of judgment, and that's to be covered in the blood of the lamb.
to have our sins washed away, to be cleansed, purified, and covered. And the question we have to ask is, how? How are we covered in the blood of the Lamb? How are we participators in what Christ did on the cross? And the answer is by faith. (laughs) We trust and we believe in what Christ has done, that He did it all. There's nothing that you and I can do. We can't add to our justification that Christ was substituted for us. His death for our death, and he purchased grace and benefits for his people. And the only way we can receive that is by faith, by the power of the Spirit, that he has given these things to his people. And so when we come to the supper, when we come to this meal that we take every week as a body, we we are saying that this is a means of grace. How? (laughs) That in the Lord's Supper, God is making his covenant promises visible. He's showing his people what the promises of the covenant are. That in the new covenant, I will atone for your sin. I will be poured out. I will wash you. I will cleanse you. I will feed you. And if someone was to ask you, what is the new covenant like? What's so great about the new covenant? <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean to be a part of Christ's kingdom and Christ's covenant? We look to the signs of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The new covenant looks like death, burial, resurrection, new life, and union with Christ. It looks like being washed in the blood of the Lamb, eating and drinking of Christ by faith and being fed by Him. This is what God will do. And so these signs are not us coming to the table and saying, look how great I am, look how holy I've been this week. God needs to bless me for this. No, it's the opposite. It's God telling us what he's done. It's his pledge that for all those that have faith in Christ, the the judgment's already happened. It's been poured out on Christ. There's not left for us. And so in a way, this causes us to look outside of ourselves. It's not this thing that we do where we just look inside of ourselves and see we can find every sin and every holy act that we've done. No, we're meant to look outside of ourselves. Christ has done it all. He has finished the work on the cross. And by this, by eating and drinking with faith, our souls are nourished. That just as when we eat and drink with our mouths, our bodies are nourished, So when we partake of the Lord's Supper by faith, our souls are nourished. (laughs) That our souls are nourished. That we are weary. We are heavy laden. We, I think we like to think our faith is pretty strong. You know, i got a strong faith. But it's not. (laughs) Our faith is weak. You've ever (laughs) woken up and said, man, I'm discouraged this morning. I'm weak this morning. When we come to church and when we hear the word of God, when we hear the gospel and we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're meant to look back at what Christ has done. Our faith is strengthened, that Christ is the one who has done it, and that this is truly a fellowship in the body and the blood of Christ. The Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 is koinonia, fellowship. He says, is this not a fellowship, a communion in the blood of Christ and the bread that we break? Is it not a communion, a fellowship in the body of Christ? That this is not just a memory, it's a means of grace. It's something God has given his people, a work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And so it's not to be a meal for the strong. It's meant to be a meal for the weak. And so maybe you're saying to yourself this morning, Kindle, I've sinned. I don't deserve to go to the Lord's Supper. I failed this week. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I put my faith in Christ, but I failed. I sinned. I stumbled. I deserve judgment. But what we're saying in the Supper is that Christ has taken it. He's been poured out. His body was crucified so that ours might be spared. This is what God has done, and this is what the Lord's Supper is proclaiming. It's a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes again. And so as we sort of step back this morning and try to think about what this means for us here today, two things to look at this morning. First, we'll look at this idea of the Lord's Supper and what it means for us as a church. That the Lord's Supper is a sign that God has given to his covenant people. That's what we've established. It was true in the Old Testament, right? Moses sprinkles the blood on the people and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. And the people say, yes, we will do it. We will obey the law. We will do it. And what do they do five minutes later? They break the covenant. They make an idol out of gold and they start worshiping a calf. They break the covenant, and they keep breaking the covenant, and that people doesn't even enter the promised land because they keep sinning. And this covenant was meant to be a means by which they could enter the promised land, and they failed, and they failed, and they failed. But in the new covenant, what we're saying is that Christ has done it. He has done it all. He has fulfilled the demands of the law and purchased the benefits for his people. And so this is a sign for us, not that we need to somehow keep the commands of the law perfectly, but that Christ has done it and that by the supper we have fellowship with him and fellowship with one another. That the Lord's Supper is not just this individualistic event that we do as individuals but it is a corporate act. As Paul says, when you gather together, when the church is gathered, (laughs) this is a corporate thing. So the scriptures are assuming several things about the Lord's Supper, that it's to be taken when the people of God are gathered. It's to be taken when the people of God are gathered together. Another thing we see is that there's a proper way in which to do it. Paul says you need to examine yourselves. You need to examine yourselves and discern the body. And he even says that the reason some of you are sick is because you're coming in an unworthy manner. You're coming flippantly. That doesn't mean we need to like treat this as a as a you know a funeral service, but we need to come soberly. This is a holy ordinance that God has given his people. And so we need to examine ourselves and not come in unrepentant sin, and that leads me to the next point, that the scriptures assume that this Lord's Supper is to be taken away for those that are living in unrepentant sin. We could call this church discipline. That Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, he says that you're not to eat with such a one. What does Paul mean there? He's talking about those that are living in sexual immorality, drunkenness, every kind of sin. He says not to eat with such a person. Does he mean never talk to unbelievers, never have McDonald's with your unbelieving friend or someone that says they're a Christian but they're living in sin? He's not saying don't eat with them. He's saying they're not to partake of the Lord's Supper. 
that's what I would say, is that this meal, this Lord's Supper, is a sign of fellowship with God. And if someone is not walking in accordance to God's commands, not perfectly, but in repentance, that they are to be taken away from the supper. Or, you know, as Paul says, he has strong language for this. With the goal always being to restore that brother or sister, and we see that in Second Corinthians, but just a, an important thing to note there. So the scripture assumes this is for the gathered people of God, that it's be done in a proper manner, and that it's not to be for those that are living in unrepentant sin. But if we can make it even more personal this morning, even more to the point, we see that the Lord's Supper is not just a memory. It's not just something that we look back on, a mental sticky note. But as one pastor said, there is both a past, present, and future tense to the Lord's Supper. That we are to look back on Christ's death, but we are to presently, currently proclaim his death. And that we're also to look to the future, to the day when we will drink it anew with him the new heavens and the new earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there is a past, present, and future tense. And Jesus, when he says, you're to continue to do this, he's not just saying, you know, keep doing it. It's a good practice. We're meant to look forward. The Lord's Supper is not the end. It's not the fulfillment. The fulfillment is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a foretaste of what God will do in eternity. We could say it has eschatological meaning. <laughs> that we're not to just keep doing this, you know, as this sort of empty thing, but it's pointing us forward to when Christ will return, when we will eat and drink with him, and we will drink it anew. And so as we go to the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, we see this beautiful picture come out in Revelation this marriage supper of the Lamb, where God will cleanse and purify his people, that he will make all things new, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And in Revelation chapter 7, we see these beautiful words, this picture of the end of what God will do for his people. John tells us about this scene. He says, there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And John goes on to say, that one of the elders comes to him and says, Who are these that are clothed in white, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is our only hope this morning. We need the blood that makes white. We are those who are filthy, unclean, unable to go before God. We need pure robes in order to have communion with God. And the only way this is possible is through what God has done in Christ on the cross, applying the blood of the Lamb to us. And so this morning, we look to him as our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray.
Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this means of grace, this supper that you have given to your people and that you've promised to be present with us, that you are not absent from us, that you say that it is better that I go so that I might send my spirit to be present with my people. And so, Lord, this morning as we come to the supper, we come not as people that are worthy of anything in and of ourselves, but are of those that are unworthy, and yet you call us. And so this morning we come looking by faith to the blood of the Lamb, knowing that that's the only way we're going to be made white as snow, is when the Lamb's blood is applied to our door, that death and judgment and wrath might pass over us, and we might be covered by the Lamb. We have no other hope this morning, no other hope. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming against sin, but we have a means to be saved. Because Christ was put to death, we are made alive. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.